Well, howdy, friends. You might not be able to guess this by looking at me, but I'm a huge World War II history buff. In fact, actually, I like it more than economics. Truth be told, more than my family. I also love watching World War II documentaries, even though I pretty much know how all of them end. America comes in, saves the day. Kind of like that unhittable relief pitcher that also hits 10 home runs. Well, anyway, the other day I was watching Ken Burns' The War. Perhaps you've seen it. If you haven't, I highly recommend it. It's just from the U.S. perspective, and it follows the trials and tribulations associated with four small American towns. Now, you might wonder what this has to do with economics. Well, I don't remember which episode it was, but it was well into the series. It was a lengthy segment about the remarkable achievement that Americans paid for the war on their own. And they did this through taxes and especially bond drives. This was discussed for quite some time in the episode. And they focused on the personalities behind several of the bond drives. Very interesting. But, now, I don't want to say anything bad about Ken Burns. I mean, my mama always said, don't say anything bad about Ken Burns. She's not dead, she just stopped saying it. But nevertheless, this got me to thinking about the story. About the story that the Americans paid for the war themselves. I mean, exactly what does this mean? The typical explanation is that when the government spends, this has to be offset by either taxation or borrowing. And what old Ken Burns is getting at with the bond drive narrative is that the American people were loaning money to the government whenever the government came up short. This was held up to be a monumental achievement. The implication being that Americans, if they hadn't loaned this money to the government, then some number of tanks or planes or aircraft carriers could never have been built. And what a glorious story that is. But then so's the outlaw Josie Wales. Only problem is it ain't true. Oh, it makes you feel good, but it's made up. I mean, think about it. In order for the war bonds finance the war story to be true, it must be true that Americans had sufficient spending power at the beginning of 1942, right after Pearl Harbor in December of 41, uh, to save in the form of war bonds in the amount of $338 billion in today's terms. Because that's how big the government's deficit was that year. And given that the U.S. population back in 42 was $135 million, that breaks down to each and every person saving $2,500 in the form of some sort of loan to the government, whether it be war bonds or whatever. Not per worker, not per household, but per person. Sounds like little Susan used to quit the third grade and get a job. Because that's not only the way you could sell uh, war bonds, of course. It doesn't have to be from uh, money. It could also be from, you know, it doesn't have to be from, say, from your paycheck. It could be something that was, uh, uh, oh, you used to own some stocks or something and you sold them and then you bought the, used the proceeds to buy war bonds. But, of course, that would have had a depressive effect on the stock prices, which is not the goal here. Speaking of depressive, not only do we need roughly $2,500 per person, but we were only just emerging from the Great Depression. Oh, things were better, to be sure. But then if you've got a rattlesnake on each arm and you shake one off, that's better too. Still ain't good. And unemployment immediately before the war was still almost 10%. Three years before that, it had been 15, 17, and 19. 10's better, but it's not good. So where'd all these savings come from that, that purchased all the war bonds? Well, one might argue that they came from the wonderful defense jobs that Americans got because of the war. But then one might also be dumb as a tree stump. You see, you can't buy war bonds that build the factory with your paycheck from that factory. No, Ken, it doesn't make sense. Uh, it's hard to imagine where this money came from since according to the standard story, it had to come before the factories were built and the jobs were created. So let's look at this whole Americans finance World War II thing from another angle. Let's say the U.S. had the resources to build all this industrial might, but no one would loan them the money. What would have happened then? 
We were to sat idly by? Is this the story we're being told? Having the steel, rubber, gunpowder, technology, and personnel necessary, but not the little scraps of paper? We would have watched Herr Hitler marching down Main Street of Fort Worth, capturing all this wonderful productivity and using it for his Nazi war machine? Of course not. Because in fact, the money's irrelevant. As you know from videos number one and number two, both the private sector and the government can create video, I'm sorry, create money out of thin air. That's never the problem. And indeed, it wasn't in World War II either. The government didn't need to borrow anybody's money then any more than it has to now. It just created brand new money. And then they used that money to build the factories, tanks, planes, and ships. Of course, then once unemployment did fall below 2% as it did, war bonds can easily be sold. But you still got the chicken and the egg problem. And why bother? Now, this raises an issue. If the U.S. could simply print the money, then why bother selling the war bonds at all? Why have these momentous bond drives featuring celebrities and war heroes and so on? Well, a very big part of the answer is inflation. As I just mentioned, unemployment fell below 2%. And not only were these jobs, but these were good jobs. That's tons of spending power in the hands of Americans right when there was very little to buy because the resources were being diverted to the war effort. Well, what do you do to stop inflation? Well, you raise taxes, which is precisely what we did. And not because they needed the money, but to keep inflation under control. And in addition, they tried to convince people to voluntarily save, particularly patriotic saving via war bonds. Don't buy anything now. Hell, there ain't nothing to buy anyway. Wait till the war is over. And that was the real purpose of the, war, of the uh, bond drives. Well, you're probably thinking right now that's a fine piece of fiction there, cowboy economist. But everybody knows the truth is that the bond drives were instrumental in stopping Hitler, Tojo, and Mussolini. But let me recommend a book to you. It's called The War Bond Story by Lawrence Olney. It's available on the internet. Just search for it. It's free. Now, Lawrence Olney, this guy, he ain't one of them ivory tower scholars who just thinks he knows every damn thing because he has reading glasses and a snooty attitude. No, he was a career U.S. Treasury official throughout the entire war, and he was part of both uh, the planning and execution of the bond drives. And let me give you a couple of quotes from the book. First, about the savings bond program that started in 1935. There were three sound objectives of the savings bond program. One, to instill in the minds of the American people Oh, uh, I have a teleprompter now, so you're probably wondering, did he memorize all these quotes? No, nah, no, nah, it's right there in front of me. Uh, you can't see it, but there's words in front of you right now. <clears throat> I'll back up. Uh, there were three, this is from the book. There were three sound, oh, I'm sorry, from 1935, so before the war, the savings bond program. There were three sound objectives from the savings board uh, bond program. One, to instill in the minds of the American people the habit of thrift. Two, to educate the people with respect to government securities, and three, to bind the people closer to their government, not only in financial affairs, but for its total well-being. A savings bond was a share in America. Now, notice that not one of those stated in order to borrow money to cover government deficits. Rather, it was about instilling a particular attitude. Now, listen to this. This is one of the important goals of the war bond program, all right? The, the actual, not, not pre-war, but the war bond program, again from the book, from page four. There was another important objective in the minds of Secretary Morgenthau and Odegaard. Since the outbreak of the war in 1939, the American people were badly disunited. The defense bond program could provide a channel for united action and participation in national defense to eradicate differences of religion, race and class, section or party, a program in which all could work. So you see, the idea 
was to create a feeling of patriotism and unity. And this, I contend, is what Ken Burns is really picking up on. We didn't need the bond drive to raise the money, but we did need them to raise patriotic fervor. And it was also about inflation, as I suggested earlier. Once the war started, officials became concerned with, quote, the problem of diverting excess purchasing power. Consistent with what I said earlier, once the incomes rose and the number of goods on the store shelves fell, we were certainly setting ourselves up for some serious price increases, and the Treasury was well aware of this. Here's another quote from the book, page 27. The Secretary addressed the Advertising Club of Boston at the Statler Hotel in Boston, broadcast coast to coast by the mutual broadcasting system. The Secretary stated that America faced inflation and that taxes and defense bonds were the correctives. Even in some of these documents that I read here about the funding for the war, they started talking about what they called dangerous dollars. The idea that this money that was burning the hole in the pocket of Americans needed to have some sort of uh, diversion, something to make sure that we didn't end up with terrible inflation. Now to be sure, those working at the Treasury also viewed themselves as creating funding for the war effort. But they clearly understood that, strictly speaking, it wasn't necessary. Listen to this from page 39. The greatest single contribution the nation could make toward paying for the war was to avoid inflation. I'm going to say it again. The greatest single contribution the nation could make toward paying for the war was to avoid inflation. In other words, the, the, the message here is we could pay for it another way, but not without inflation, not without significant price increases. Now, as my last piece of evidence uh, supporting this viewpoint, I'm going to tell you about a, a piece that came out after the war by a fellow named uh, Beardsley Rummel. He was the chair of the Federal Reserve Bank in New York, and so once again, a fellow that probably had some idea of how things were working. And it was in American Affairs, the uh, journal, and his piece was entitled, Taxes for Revenue are Obsolete. Need I say more? It was very clear to those who were actually running the war economy that we did not need taxes or war bonds but that without them, we would face other consequences. Not the consequence of not being able to build a tank or a plane, because God knows if we had the, the, the factories and so forth out there, we were going to do what we needed to do. But the consequence of runaway inflation. And so, Mr. Burns, if I may reframe that segment of your wonderful documentary, and I mean that very sincerely, the American people did not single-handedly finance the war effort, but the American people did single-handedly make the war effort less inflationary. Thank you.